I was really pulling for Chillich. Yeah, I know you were. You're a Fed hater, which is ridiculous, but tis what it tis. I'm not a Fed hater. I'm Fed fatigued. I think there's a difference. No, that's just, that's ridiculous. Obviously, fatigue suggests you're tired of watching his play, but you should never be tired of watching his play. That's fair. It's not that I'm tired of him. I'm tired of his opponents. All right. You you can believe whatever you want. How's our mic check? Welcome to... Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, brought to you by Cracked Rackets. My name's Alex Gruskin. Joining me on this podcast, as always, my doubles partner, partner in crime, and the man who... I really... I can't think of a third thing. You're not that impressive. Is my dancing (laughs) distracting you right now? You are. You threw me off balance. No, I, I... I'm not that impressive. WSN executive, CSG representative. Oh, God. Don't do that. Uh, We don't need my resume. (laughs) (laughs) Check check my LinkedIn for that. Uh, Those those are for your mom. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, Max Rothman, welcome to the show. Uh, You know, it's been a big second week. Obviously, we had an incredibly topsy-turvy event, and then, of course, it ended with a Federer victory, so... What do you think? What are you giving me? You act disappointed. It's so annoying. I know. I feel like you're going to have to force me to be high energy today because that final just kind of drained me. Yeah. For for those of you who don't know, we actually realized that there was zero chance either of us stayed up all night and were able to watch it live. So what we did was planned on watching it in the morning. A media blackout. A media blackout. And for neither of us did that work. Well, so (laughs) that's not entirely fair. I made it all the way here. And we were ready to watch the match, and it was about halfway through the first set, and Federer, I think, was up 4-1. And uh, some sort of statistic... Oh, no, no, no. Fritz and Klon were playing their final, and I wanted to bring it up, and I got a push notification from CNN that says Federer wins his 20th major in five sets. (laughs) And I was like, ah, come on. But so we watched the match together, and it was an incredible final, you know, a lot of different shifts in momentum and you know Chilich went through streaks of excellence and then of course Federer you know for him to do any of this at age 36 obviously phenomenal and you know at least this time we we didn't get any tears from Chilich just just <laughs> some just some class but from we him. did get tears from Federer we did. and of course we'll get into that later a little housekeeping before we begin obviously the Australian Open is wrapped up but if you want to catch up on any of the coverage if you want to you know go through and remember some of your favorite matches go check out our website CrackedRackets.com. We've got a ton of excellent content, a summary of every day's play, a recap of the bigger storylines. Obviously, we'll have some more content out by the time this podcast is released, and you know we want you to check out that stuff, interact with us on the chat boards, any lingering thoughts you have, any questions moving forward. We'd love to hear them, so please go check out our website. And yeah, we got some fun articles in there too. You know, we got a, a top ten tweets from the Australian Open, so you know, definitely go check out all the stuff that that Alex has told you about. But as far as what we're going to be bringing to you over the next couple of weeks, we got a Taylor Fritz podcast coming out soon. Uh, he actually just took the title in Newport, so I uh, might have to add a little bit to the end of that podcast it's and a talk challenger about that title. Match. Definitely worth talking. Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Uh, he played well, and we're definitely going to start also covering some college tennis. You know, the college tennis season is starting, and uh, we want to make sure we give you guys some inside uh, information into what that world's looking like. For sure. I mean, 
My boys at Virginia lost this weekend. You know, don't think I lost that match just because I was all in the Australian Open coverage. I see you guys, Virginia, and I'm ready to talk about this college tennis season. I'm Notice he says to go. I lost that match because like, <laughs> he's part of the team. It's so no, ridiculous. I'm, I'm saying, don't think I didn't see it. Yeah, but you yes. said you lost it. Look, hey. we lost. We lost. Hey, it's not me. Good job. <laughs> uh, we also want to give a, a special shout out to our our boy Max Fliegner, our producer in the back, going two and zero in singles. Oh, one and one in doubles. You know, we we've got to teach him a few things from, <laughs> from uh, some club tennis national champs. He can he can learn a few things from us. Uh, but two and zero on the weekend for Dharma. So uh, congrats to you and uh, always always looking forward to getting. And you back of in the course, booth. shout out to our U of M Wolverines. Took the doubles point against North Carolina. Currently one one. That's a match to try and qualify for the ITA indoors. We'll be following that and we'll give live updates throughout this podcast. So if you hear some reactions, know that that's why. <laughs> but of course. It's time to talk about the Australian Open. You know, we did a podcast last week covering the first round and the matches we enjoyed. And so if you want to hear more about our first week coverage, go check that episode out. But this week, we're going to be focusing on matches from the second day of the fourth round and on. So, of course, quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. We may not touch on every match, but we're definitely going to touch on the ones we thought were the most important in determining how this Australian Open, you know, ended up finishing. Max, I think the match we have to start with, and maybe the match that threw our second week into the most chaos, Heon Chung's 7-6, 7-5, 7-6 win over Novak Djokovic, who was the number 14 seed. This was an incredible level of tennis, and I know it was only three sets, but the stat I'll start with, total points won, Chung 138, Djokovic 128, so you know the margins were thin. What did you think? I mean, I think this was probably the first time where I fully believed in Chung's ability. I know last week when we were talking, I I thought for some reason that Chung was short, like five seven, five eight, but turns out like you said, he's six one and he shows it out there. He's, he's a full six one. Oh yeah. Takes the ball early, rips the ball. I mean he he really is aggressive and uh something else we were talking about, you know, growing up Djokovic was his idol. So, you know, to go into a match Playing like Djokovic and then to beat Djokovic, I mean, as a 21-year-old, it's so impressive. So before we get into the weeds of the tennis, I kind of want to go on with that point. And I have some questions for you. You know, we were joking about Chung's mentality during that match and the way after, you know, only the biggest points at the end of each set, he does his hands up in the air and he pumps up the crowd. I just, for a guy who is, you know, young, (laughs) for a guy who was born in 1996, you know, he's 21 years old. This was an incredible moment, and, you know, you didn't see a speck of nervousness in him. No, not at all. And, you know, I think that's a testament to his ability to, you know, make it farther and farther in these tournaments as he gets older. And, you know, I think that was something that I talked about last week was I wasn't sure if he was going to be able to do that. And that's something that we talk about with all the next-gen guys is do they have the confidence in their own game to go against these top guys? And a lot of them, with the lack of an experience, as we saw in the early rounds, lost to some of these top seeds. And, you know, Chung played great and was able to take the ball early and control the court. And- yeah, and Hyun Chung is a top 60 presence. You know, I think he came into this tournament ranked 56. Uh, so he has had some success. I know he had won like $1.8 million in prize money before this event. So clearly some success. And again, he was our next-gen finals champion at the end of last year. But yeah, he did an incredible job riding that momentum throughout this early part of the season. You know, has been playing so well this week. Obviously took out Zverev earlier in the tournament, beat Mishka Zverev, beat Daniil Medvedev, uh, you know, and then he, you know, in the fourth round, he ends up against Novak Djokovic. And 
And yeah, so Chung comes into this match playing well, and you look at his first serve percentage, he makes 67% of his first serves, wins 65% of those points, hits 47 winners against only 37 unforced errors, and whenever you're in the positive, that's a good thing, particularly against someone who moves as well as Djokovic. You mentioned it. He's 6'1", and he is using his size. You know, it's a th- it's a thick 6'1". He's not He's a, got some tree trunks. Oh, it's unbelievable how thick his thighs are. And so his ability to kind of stay on the baseline, hold his positioning, use his incredible ground strokes, and again, taking the ball early to move his opponents side to side. For as well as Djokovic moved, Chung was the aggressor. Not, you know, like we said, as well as Djokovic moves, I actually want to say Chung moved better than him in this Which match. Which is an incredible thing to say. It's a hot take for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, if you watch him, some of these points that they were having, he was the one making the extra ball almost every single time. And I think that's a testament to his uh, just physical ability on court. He also played a five-set match with Zverev before this. To come back out two days later and play Novak Djokovic, your idol, also in the quarterfinals, and in the Australian heat. In I a mean, night match. In a night match. In front it's, of the primetime crowd. I mean, yeah, it's impressive. He's clearly one of the more physically fit guys on tour. And you're looking <clears throat> sorry. And you're looking at the things Chung did well in this match. Djokovic on his own second serve, and we can go on about Djokovic's elbow <laughs> problems, but yeah. we're not doctors. We don't want to speculate. Obviously, it affected his second serve, and the pace wasn't exactly there. But he only won 39% of those points. And right. to Chung's credit, he's taking advantage of that. He's stepping in. He's dictating against Djokovic. You know, if you watch the YouTube highlights, there are a ton of times where he hits that passing shot. But it's something he was almost drawing from Novak, kind of forcing him to come in. And you look at net points, Djokovic only goes 23 of 38, which not horrible, over 50%, but not that great. You know, obviously, there were opportunities for Chung to pass him. And in a match where it's only a 10 total point difference, that's the margin. Yeah, exactly. And you know something else to point out, Chung won six of his 10 break points. So clearly taking advantage of those opportunities to break and get a lead in the set. And, you know, obviously you can point to some of these stats on Djokovic's end and say, you know, maybe not the best match on his part. 57 unforced errors. Um, he had 19 break point opportunities, only converting five. I mean, clearly this match being two tie break sets, could have gone either way. Maybe Djokovic played a few points differently. Who knows? But uh, you know, I got to give credit to Chung for playing a pretty spectacular match. I agree with you, and I'm glad you made those points. A prime Djokovic does not fail to convert on 14 break points. Yeah, you know, he goes better than five of 19. And in terms of the unforced errors versus winners, you mentioned 57 unforced errors, but only 36 winners, and that's yeah. just not a margin that you expect out of Novak Djokovic. Nope. I agree with you. We're not trying to take anything away from Chung, and to go. 12 of 21 at the net against Djokovic, not the best thing, but that's just a testament to how good he was from the baseline, like you said. And yeah, Chung put together an incredible performance. You mocked me when I included him in our question of who has the brighter future, team Zverev, Dimitrov, or Chung. You know, we'll get into his performances again later on, and we'll talk about the blister, believe me, but he was very impressive in this first match. Hey, look, up until this point, I didn't really have any reason to say that he was in contention for that uh, amongst those guys. You know, obviously he he won the next-gen title, but um, I I don't know. To me, up until now, he didn't really have uh, any sort of viable backing for me to say 
he has the ability to to take it to where those two are. But, I I agree with you. And my last point on this Chung thing before we move on to our next match, you compare him to Zverev. Zverev has still not made it past the fourth round. For Chung to even have that experience, regardless of how it ended, incredible performance, and you know beating Novak Djokovic in prime time will give you confidence moving forward. Absolutely. Another guy who should be very confident about the state of his game. Tennis Sandgren, you know, in the fourth round, he defeats Dominic Team, the number five seed, 6-2, 4-6, 7-6, 6-7, 6-3. Obviously, Dominic Team is more known for his prowess on clay than hard courts, but he's still a guy who's going to slug away, who's going to hit a ton of winners and dictate no matter where, you know, how deep behind the baseline he is, a guy who, you know, has aggressive ground strokes and will put pressure on you as his opponent. And Sandgren responded well. I thought he played incredible in this match. What are your first thoughts? Yeah, agreed. I mean, I I think the thing I liked about Sandgren is he does a pretty good job mixing up points. I think, you know, he's not the kind of guy to just kind of get in a rhythm uh, in a match. And, you know, I really love his backhand. I know you have some qualms with the fact that he slices a little too much, but I think the backhand for him is one of his weapons. Uh, might even be better than his forehand, in my opinion. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. I think Sandgren did a really good job with Dominic kind of mixing it up, coming into the net. Um, you know, he went 31 for 47 on net points. I think that's a that's a pretty good showing, and to come in a lot against a guy like Dominic, who doesn't make it that easy to come in, is, is a good start for him. I agree with you. A five-set match, obviously it's an either-or. In terms of total points, one, Sanger in 179, team 168. I want to pry you on a point you just made, this idea that Sandgren doesn't necessarily get in a rhythm. I don't, I don't know if that's exactly what you meant. I think what you mean is he does get in a rhythm, and he works really good patterns of moving his opponent's side decide he doesn't you know get complacent slapping cross court or he doesn't just go for spontaneous slaps all of it is purposeful yeah um, I, I just think he has you know really good patterns and so I think he does have a rhythm of his own game but it throws the rhythm of maybe you know like I said uh, versus Fed Nadal you see kind of a standard point of attack the Fed backhand sure yeah no that's that's a that's a fair way to interpret what I was trying to say I, yeah I, I like that I mean he, he definitely makes it hard for his opponents to get in a rhythm yeah it's great patterns and you mentioned yes I don't like how often he slices the backhand particularly when you're playing Dominic team you can't give up an inch otherwise you know team's going to take it and he's going to end up dictating and you look at the total winners team does hit 66 to Sandgren 63 but I guess when you're looking for the things that differentiate them team has 11 more unforced errors than Sandgren in terms of first serve percentage Sandgren hits 74% versus team 65 yeah in a match that's this close that's the difference it's little things and Sandgren did a lot of things really well and you know it allowed him to stay in this match and go the distance I mean that that's exactly what I was going to point out is just Sandgren really didn't do a whole lot wrong he had 63 winners and 38 unforced errors I mean that is a nice margin on his winners on four stairs, and uh, really there there wasn't a whole lot that he did wrong in this match. And, uh, you know, I think he showed that he is a competitor and that he can make it far into a Grand Slam, but what do you think? Is, is this something that could perpetuate into the future? Is this, you know, maybe yeah. a sign that he could break into the top 20, top 30? Top 20, I don't know. I just don't know if he has enough weapons. You know, the first serve percentage, again, when you're serving 74%, that's elite. That's very Mm -hmm. good. And even if you're not John Isner, 
that's the type of number that will allow you to hold throughout a match. Absolutely. I think he moves extraordinarily well, and he certainly has the physical qualifications of a top 75 presence. I don't know. Again, sometimes the, his balls sit a little bit short, and his forehand's a little wristy, so you could tell sometimes the team would attack it with pace, and he would float one short, and then you know team has the next ball, and he's able to be even more aggressive. I do love the versatility in Sandgrid's game. He is able to come in. He's able to snap backhand, not only flat, you know, driving shots, but also backhand slices down the line. And so a lot of great variety. Yeah, I think he'll stick in the top 100 for the rest of the year. Top 30, I don't know that. You know, Steve Johnson has a weapon. That's what else, what's allowed him to get into the top sure. 30. I don't know if Sandgren's movement and first serve percentage are good enough to get him there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that is the tough part with him. It's it's hard to identify something that differentiates him from a lot of the top guys. I mean, I think he is one of the more athletic guys. He moves well. I also really like his touch. I think he uh, needs to come into the net more than he does. I think we've seen him in this match have some really nice touch volleys, and I think that's something that he uh, needs to kind of utilize more well I think he also likes to use his speed as a weapon you know he's not uncomfortable hitting passing shots Mm -hmm. and so maybe that kind of adds to his reluctance to move forward even more so than he does another thing again he does sometimes hit the ball a little bit short and that kind of leaves him susceptible to attacks particularly you don't want to leave a ball short and then come in behind it because you're just opening yourself up to a bunch of trouble but yeah I that's why I'm saying top 75 sure I don't know. You know, I'll, I want to see him on clay. I want to see how he moves on a different surface, how his ball adjusts, if it's as heavy as it looked. You know who else I want to see on clay? It's Chung. Really? Yeah, I would uh, love to see him on clay. I wonder because, you know, he does have such a thick lower half. Will he be able to slide as well? He slides incredibly well on hard courts. And he does. We saw his foot obviously burned a lot of skin. You know, can he do that on clay? I agree. It'll be interesting to see. And can he, you know, his shots aren't exactly heavy spin there. They're more flat, and so will he be able to make his opponents play defense on clay? Well, I guess we're just going to have to wait for the French to see that. But speaking of seeing both of these two play on clay, why don't we talk about them playing on the hard court here in Australia? Oh, it's so cheesy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do want to say there's an elephant in the room we're not addressing, and it's the entire Tennis Sandgren social media episode that transpired between the fourth round and the quarterfinals. Obviously, Sandgren had not had this level of success before, and with that success comes more scrutiny, comes more exposure to major media outlets who want to examine your past and see what you're all about. And we are obviously aware of everything that happens. We wanted to address that separately, so we will talk about it later on in the podcast. But for now, we're just going to stick to the tennis. So, like you mentioned, a little bit better transition. Chung and Sandgren. Chung defeats Sandgren 6-4, 7-6, 6-3. Sandgren was up 5-3 in the second set and fought off five match points at 5-3 in the third, including some incredible, uh, you know, an incredible display of reflexes. Oh, yeah, the volley at his face that he just... Yeah. So what do you think of the level of play in this one? Was it a dip from Sandgren? Did, was Chung just too powerful and Sandgren couldn't hurt him? What was it? Yeah, I would say it's a, a bit of a dip from Sandgren. I think throughout the tournament, you know, he wasn't really making as many unforced errors as he, as he did in this match. Uh, I think Chung kind of has been doing the same thing throughout the tournament. Um, yeah, just very solid from the baseline. No mental mistakes, low unforced error count relative to his ability to dictate from the baseline. Yeah, and I think there's a couple stats that kind of prove to Sangren not playing his best. Dropping from his 74% first serve percentage in the previous match to 55% in this match. 
obviously hurts him. Also, only a 45% win percentage on his second serve, so clearly the serve was a struggle in this match for him. Also, his winners to unforced errors margin was way off compared to last match where he was almost double the winners to unforced errors previously he was 37 winners to his 43 unforced errors so he's in the negatives here i think this is just not as good of a performance from him well the reason i wanted to bring up the whole sangren off-court situation and you're our body language doctor on this podcast so i need your thoughts here how much of a distraction was that you know did it affect his ability to focus did it affect his preparation we can only speculate but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think if you watch the match, he does a pretty good job at staying composed, but in that off time where he's, you know, preparing and trying to get mentally tough for the upcoming, you know, battle he's going to have to go through, that's a huge distraction. That's something that, you know, his whole team's going to have to get involved with. He's going to be contacting his PR people. He's going to have to come up with press statements to release and you know it's it's something that you can't really avoid so yeah absolutely is going to be something that affects this uh was that the reason that he didn't play well eh, hard to say also you know it's the quarterfinals of an, of a grand slam he's played a lot of tough matches so I don't know. It's hard to say. Going five sets with Dominic Thiem definitely doesn't make it easier. Well, I don't think Dominic Thiem and Hyung Chung play too different of a style to compare outside of the fact that Thiem has a (laughs) one-handed backhand. But, you know, in terms of uh, Sandgren's aggressiveness moving forward against Team, he goes to the net 47 times against Chung, only 34. And you kind of wonder... You know, is he intimidated by Chung's speed? Like you mentioned, laterally, Chung will cover every inch of the baseline, and his ability to hit passing shots did that, you know, make Sandgren less comfortable moving forward. But you mentioned it the big difference in this match win percentage on second serves, Sandgren only 45% versus Chung 62. That's just not going to cut it, particularly like you mentioned when you're Sandgren and you're only making 55% of your first serves, it's just not going to get it done. And, you know, three straight sets, probably not the type of effort Sandgren would have wanted, particularly given, you know, he moves well enough to hang with Chung. And again, he does certain things well, you know, mixing up the pace down the line, uh, you know, mixing in the slice, moving forward. He did have the ability when playing his best to hang with a Chung and probably not the performance he wanted to end his tournament with. But credit to Chung, man. I saw his foot. It could not have been, a, you know, a comfortable match for him. And he really dominated this one. Absolutely. And, you know, while we can say he was disappointed with his last match, he has taken home $444,000. Or, excuse me, $440,000. This is Sandgren. For the tournament, where previously uh, his career earnings were four hundred eighty-nine thousand, so he's got to be somewhat happy with the oh, the change in the sure. pocket. <laughs> and he jumps from eighty-five to fifty-five in the rankings. He's getting into Pretty whatever events he wants. Yeah. yeah, he will be playing ATP events throughout the clay court season, and so you know he'll be a guy to watch. Whether it's the controversy surrounding him, whether it's his level of tennis, will he be able to sustain it? Is he a two out of a three set player, or is it that his fitness that gets him over the hump in three out of five? It'll be interesting to see. And so he's someone to keep watching. Obviously, Hyun Chung we'll talk about again in the semifinals, so we can move on now to our next match. Our first major upset of the quarterfinals, or is this a major upset? And at this point of the tournament, given the true amount of upsets we had had, did this even register on your radar, Max Rothman? Marin Cilic beats Rafael Nadal 3-6, 6-3, 6-7, 6-2, 2-0. Were you ready for it? Honestly, no. I, I really thought... Nadal was playing well. 
I didn't think that he was going to have a struggle with Chilich. I mean, Chilich was playing some good tennis, but I figured Chilich had just played a pretty grueling match against Cranio Busta, you know, going four sets, three of which were tiebreakers. Uh, you know, it, it was somewhat surprising for me. I will, I will say I didn't expect Nadal, one, to lose and two to pull out. I mean, I am someone who is such a qualm with people who pull out of matches, especially when it's the fifth set. I know you were hurting, but I don't know, man. I think that's I've a seen you hit soft. the Tylenol too many times for you to... <laughs> yeah, you know what? Sometimes you got to do it, man. You just got to pop a couple Tylenol and suck it up for the last couple games. For sure, but a couple things before we get into the weeds in this match as well. The headbands have done a number on Nadal's hairline. Oh, boy. It needs He's looking to be old stated. out there. He does not look his best. I think that's why he brought back the Well, that's the what I was going to say. But to make younger. up for it, the sleeveless works. He clearly lifted a little bit this offseason knowing that the sleeveless was coming back. And compared to the pink and black outfits Nike was throwing on some of their other players, I was all in on the Nadal look. What would you think? Absolutely. No. He, he and Fed both clearly got some special treatment with the Nike clothing line, so uh, also appreciate that. He also managed to you know, stay away from tan lines on those arms. I'm surprised. <laughs> oh, I mean, my quick conspiracy theory, and I mentioned this in the changeover chat I posted, I think a couple weeks ago on Cracked Rackets, Federer and Nadal had to have come together at one point and said, hey, we need a mental advantage over these young players. You know what we can do? Have Nike send them the shittiest gear possible because it'll just throw them off their game. And you and I have our own clothing line and every little advantage we can get. Right, Rafa? And Rafa, you know, too busy playing video games, looks up and goes, yes, Roger, I'll call Uncle Tony immediately. <laughs> or he was probably playing soccer or Padel. Oh, he's I, a big Padel fan. I think with his knees, he was not doing either of those That's, that's fair, too. He was in the hyperbolic chamber. Just getting ready, playing, <laughs> exactly. some, playing some FIFA rather than some actual soccer. Him and Murray were on rehab. <laughs> but so let's get into the things Marin Cilic did well in this match. You know, in terms of protecting his first serve, he makes 67% of his first serves, wins 77% of those. Nadal has the most defensive return in tennis. He is seven feet behind the baseline. And to Cilic's credit, he was serving and volleying. He was saying, you're going to give me space. I'm going to try and take your time away. And if you can make that sprint across the court every time and make the passing shots, which, you know, given that it's Nadal, yeah, sometimes he can. Good for you, but I'm going to put pressure on you. And again, at the net, Chilich goes 35 of 47. An incredible conversion rate for him. He's not a guy we're accustomed to seeing dominate up there. And he played well. He was the aggressor, which being 6'6 and a guy with big ground strokes, that's what he has to do. And to his credit, he did it well. I will say to your comment about the net points, I think that's something that throughout the tournament I was very impressed with on Chilich's end. Really did a good job getting to the net on points where he was hitting a smart approach shot. And he, like you said, 35 for 47. I mean, he's converting a lot of these net points. Uh, so it's very impressive on his part. The other thing I wanted to point out is I actually think that this is a match because of the way Nadal returns that is in Chilich's favor. Obviously, you know, for the guys that are 6'6", we expect them to be aggressive, I think of the guys who are 6'6 and above, he might be the least aggressive of them, and I think that's due to the fact that he moves better than all of them, so he can stay in points longer, be a little bit um, more selective on the shots that he chooses to really go for, but I think this is where we saw he had an advantage over Nadal. He's taking a step back on his returns, and he was aggressive on them, came into the net and was able to convert. I mean, he hit 83 winners in this match. That's freaking crazy. And yes, he had 62 unforced errors alongside of it, but 83 winners gets the job done. That it does. And 
you know, I'm not 6'6", so this might be a little bit ridiculous of a comparison, but I am, you know, 6'2". I am taller than most Southeast Michigan tennis players, and when a player hit a spinnier ball into my strike zone, that helped me as a player, and I can only imagine, given the spin quantity on a Nadal shot, it kind of sits a little bit better in Chilich's strike zone, and it it probably allowed him to come through the ball more. You mentioned this earlier, or before the podcast started, his ability to hit the inside-in forehand is incredible, and you know Nadal is going to be camping on the ad side trying to hit forehands, so Chilich's ability to keep Nadal honest and go inside-in, work that line, really impressive, and he was also hitting the forehand down the line while the backhand down the line. He was making shots, and, and Nadal only won 32% of his second serve points. And so in terms of being the aggressor, even on Nadal's serve, Chilich did a good job of doing that. He's an excellent returner and, you know, he played a really good match and he deserved the victory regardless of Nadal's retirement. And you've got to give it also to Chilich. This is actually his first win against Nadal in six matchups. So, uh, you know, as, as much as I'm saying that it seems like he had the you know, advantage here, and he clearly hasn't in the past, so good for him for pulling that one out. Another big thing to look at real quick, break points opportunities. Yes, Nadal takes two sets, but he only went 2 of 10 on break point opportunities. Chilich went 5 of 19, and so again, you look at that second serve win percentage for Nadal. It's clear Chilich was able to put pressure on Nadal at all times, and when you have a bum knee, that's just, it's a bad, it's a recipe for disaster. And for Chilich, you know, credit to him for executing. But for Nadal, you, you can't let Chilich do that to you. Absolutely. And, you know, talk about another match where obviously you asked me here if I thought this was an upset. Uh, and I wasn't quite sure. For this next match, I, I think you may not have known whether this is an upset because you're a huge Kyle Edmund fan and <laughs> you're saying he's playing great. Was this an upset for you? Did, were you expecting this? This Kyle Edmund versus Grigor Dimitrov. Kyle been taking it six four three six six three six four. What do you think? I have two things I want to say. One of them I want you to respond to. The other one's just a statement, and it's about that Kyle Edmund fandom. Look, I, it's no secret I am the CEO of Murray Fans Incorporated. I have a monopoly on British tennis stock. I see a rising British star in Kyle Edmund. I buy the stock. Like, obviously, I'm in on Kyle Edmund. I hear you. I have a soft spot for gingers. You're my favorite ginger. Yes. <laughs> but he's up there. Um, you know, you, him, courier. Number two, and here's my controversial one. We'll start talking about this match. Yes, Kyle Edmund won. Yes, he was able to play incredibly aggressively, and we should talk about that more. I think if Grigor Dimitrov has Alex Virev's draw or Rafa Nadal's draw, he ends up making the final of this tournament. He had the most difficult draw of the tournament. And this is not an excuse because this is what you expect in a two-week event. But you look at his, you know, 8-6 fifth set against Mackenzie McDonald. That's a match Mackenzie played incredibly well to his credit. And no, Grigor didn't play that well. And you want to win a tournament, you can make the argument that you have to win that match in three sets. But guess what? The margins are thin. Sometimes guys are going to perform well. So that's event number one. Then he played the most physically grueling four-set match against Andre Rublev in that 115-degree heat on that hot day at the Australian Open, a match he won. But again, that's draining. You can only imagine how exhausting it is chasing down Rublev forehands. And it's a match, you know, he's done a ton of moving. I wish we had distance covered, but he covered a ton of ground in that match. I mean, I'd argue the next match that you're going to bring up was even more grueling than his Rublev. Exactly. Kyrgios at home in front of the home crowd to win that match. Emotionally draining, right? Yeah, four sets were three of them. Again, tiebreak sets. Yeah, that match is another one where I'm curious how much running Dimitrov was doing because he was definitely doing more defense in that match than he was against Rublev. I mean, 
yeah, he he definitely had the hardest draw of any of these guys. And then to go out again in the semis, or excuse me, in the quarterfinals against Edmund, who's been a playing, big banger, yeah, another guy who's going to make great you move. All tournament hasn't. I mean, Edmund didn't really play anyone spectacular up until Dimitrov. I was looking it up right now on my computer. Yes, his first round went against Anderson Draining, but then he straight sets against Istamin. A five-set match against Basilishvili, but, you know, he wins the fourth set 6-0, so that's a reprieve from a set. Not that that's an excuse. Four sets against Seppi. Tough match as well, but again, you're not playing Kyrgios, Rublev, and five sets against Mackenzie McDonald. Dimitrov is worn down, and I think Edmund was just the wrong opponent on the wrong day. A guy who dictates as much as Edmund does, it's going to make Dimitrov, you know, all of those aches he was having going to hurt that much more, and I just think he ran out of steam in the fourth set. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Dimitrov had a harder draw uh, than Edmund, but to get into some of the statistics on the match... You know, we're we're looking at Edmund winning seventy five percent of his first serves versus Dimitrov's sixty eight. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Edmund was converting forty three percent of his second serves to Dimitrov's fifty three percent. So kind of a disparity there. Edmund twenty of twenty five on his net points, and Dimitrov seventeen of twenty one. So you know, again, even though this match didn't look as close as some of these others, I mean, the margin was very small. Edmund winning 122 total points to Dimitrov's 118. You know, not a whole lot that differentiated these two in this match. The things I look at, you know, first serve percentage, Edmund 65%, Dimitrov 63 But in terms of winning that and protecting it, Edmund goes 75%, Dimitrov only 68%. In terms of breakpoint opportunities, Edmund goes 5 of 15 versus Dimitrov's 3 of 9. You mentioned only the four-point total difference. Uh, but, you know, it's things like that that really make the difference. And again, this was a close four-set match. Dimitrov was actually down a break in the fourth. I think it was 3-2, and he broke Edmund, but then Edmund immediately broke back. You know, we mentioned this in our last podcast, but a little bit more about Kyle Edmund. Incredible at dictating from the baseline, makes such clean contacts on the ground strokes. I thought he did a really good job attacking the Dimitrov backhand. And, you know, this actually kind of gets me talking about our next match as well, Roger Federer's 7-6-6-3-6-4 win over Thomas Burdich. But the difference right now between Dimitrov and Fed, because the game plan against them is the same, you know, pepper the backhand side, attack that, make them be aggressive on that side, you know, put pressure on it. I don't think Dimitrov was able, you know, he kind of just floated the ball back, whether it was a floating slice or kind of a floating toss and shot, and Edmund's able to sit on the inside-out forehand or work the inside-in and stay aggressive. And for as well as Dimitrov moves at covering that next ball, you know, Kyle Edmund was playing well enough to put pressure on him, and that's the difference where, you know, Roger Federer, he's hitting the short angle or he's knifing a slice at your knees or, you know, making you uncomfortable on an inside-out forehand to where you leave one short that he can attack early on the rise with the backhand. And I think that's the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you saw towards the end of that match, it was pretty yeah. clear that... That was a little wobbly, Di- but I'm, yeah, that's my way of saying that's why Fed won and Dimitrov didn't. Right, and, and I absolutely agree. You could definitely see at the end of that match, Dimitrov was looking gassed, wasn't able to get around that backhand, and you know he usually relies on his footwork to put him in position to be aggressive. Um, so it, I think it was pretty clear he had a tough tournament, and you know kudos to him for getting that far through that draw that he had. Uh, but yeah, it, it was hard to play a guy like Kyle Edmund who's going to take control of the ball, especially when you're leaving it short. No, for sure. And then in terms of Federer versus Burdich, look, Burdich against Del Potro took advantage of the Del Potro sitting slice, so it's not as though he didn't have experience against that sort of game style. But I mentioned this earlier. I think what makes Federer so amazing is that 
even at 36, even when everyone knows how you have to attack him, his ability to you know make you uncomfortable until you leave a ball short or just work that short topspin backhand angle, you know his ability to keep you honest with a down the line shot or if you sit one, his inside out or inside in backhand, just the variety of ways he can attack you is so remarkable. And again, in a seven six six three six four win against Tomas Burdich, he was cruising. He was vintage fed. Absolutely, he has played British, you know, 25 times now, winning 19 of those matchups. You know, he knows how to play him. He knows how to, you know, like you were saying, take those balls early, give him the angles. You know, British, not one of the best movers for some of those tall guys. And so, uh, you know, Federer did what he had to do. He's winning 80, like 83% of his first serves. It's I mean, ridiculous. When and you're doing that, you're never beating it's him. It's been 16, 17 years, and you can't read where his serve's going. It's, it's just he wins 83% of his first serve points. It's ridiculous. And also just a, a stat that is very unusual for for Burdich, only 22 winners and 19 unforced errors. I mean, if that doesn't tell you... Also, look at Federer, 61 winners and 30 unforced errors. I mean, if that doesn't tell you that Federer was just controlling this match, I don't know what does. A lot of serve plus ones, a lot of great, you know, forehand combos for Federer where he goes cross line or backhand combos, kind of making Burdich, again, uncomfortable and floating one where he goes backhand line. Yeah, it, in a three-set match, you know, for the total points to be a 20-point discrepancy, it shows that Federer was the dominating player. And in terms of breakpoint opportunities, Fed goes 4 of 8, Burdich goes 2 of 5. Look, I, I've told you this before. It's not unreasonable to, for people to suffer from Fed fatigue, but the way he's able to put together such an aggressive tennis performance, it's world-class. It's the type of film you show to young kids who want to play attacking tennis. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing that I also love was just the pure confidence Federer had. I mean, I think from the start of this match, you could just see he had control. He wasn't going to let this one go. Well, he was ready for that quick semifinal. Quick disagreement. Burdich was up 5-3 in the first, but I agree. Once Fed broke back, it was over. You could tell Burdich was just, you know, I think it was a 7-1 first set tiebreaker. It was just But even when over. he was down, I, I was watching Federer play, and it, he was like, I I could just see it in his eyes. He's like, yeah, I'm down, but I'm coming back. I'm, I'm winning. Yeah. <laughs> The guy didn't drop a set until the final. Seriously. I mean, for him to do that at age 36, I don't think it's unreasonable to say no one else has ever done that. Uh, no. The guy just keeps setting records, and I just it's it's remarkable. It doesn't matter. It, you know, again. So give I me would, a break with this Fed fatigue. You know, my thing is, to quote Jersey Janowitz, how many times do how I need to watch times? him play Burdich, you know, play? Who do you play in the semis? Uh not Chung. Sorry. How many times do I need to watch him play Burdich? How many times do I need to watch him play Chilich? Things like that. That's why I suffer from Fed fatigue. But yeah, this was an outstanding performance. The type of performance that earns you endorsements. Well, speaking of endorsements, we've got a few endorsements of our own. We're going to get back to you with a quick commercial break. That was beautiful. GSP now. Crack rackets. 
Okay, tournament number one is that Aussie Open. Lots of players in the draw, none of them doping. Let's start up in the finals and let's talk about Fed. He plays all those opponents and he makes their games look dead. He took on Marin Cilic and he made him look slow. You think his game is good, but damn it really blow. Because Federer's the best, he just does it good. By the time you're done with him, you say, oh no, 20, he good. Welcome back to... Hey, great shot. And there's the Federer fatigue <laughs> wearing off on our on our host, Alex Gruskin. I just, again, I had this media blackout going so perfectly, <laughs> and for a notification to come up on my computer was devastating. I mean, if so that doesn't just add to the My fatigue, morning was I mean, ruined, yeah. and I'm sore from playing tennis. I'm not the athlete I once was. an old man at 22 years old. I have old. blisters <laughs> not quite as bad as Chung, but if I showed you my toe right now, you would be grotesque, more so than usual. Uh, Oi. But speaking of which, let's talk about Roger Federer's 6-1-5-2 retirement victory in the semifinals over Hyun Chung. If you haven't yet, go check out, just, you know, you can Google Hyun Chung foot blister. It's not going to be the most appetizing photo, so I recommend you do it before eating or significantly after. But, ugh, I can't imagine playing with it. And, you know, it's a testament to how much he slides on hard courts. It's going to rip your skin and, whew, it's a crater. It oh it did not look pretty and it's such a shame because I honestly didn't think he was playing that poorly. I know Fed came out strong and I really wanted to see Chunk come out there and give Fed a run for his money, but Well the two things that stick out and we don't have to talk about this match long because it was clear Chung was hobbled, but you look at the first serve percentage, Fed only makes forty three percent of his first serves, but he's winning ninety four percent of those points. That you imagine that means if Chung even has to take a slight step, he's starting to feel pain, he just can't put pressure. In terms of winners, you know, Chung's a guy who's averaging in the forties, he's a guy who regardless of his opponent, puts pressure from the baseline and makes them move side to side, gets them uncomfortable. Yet in this match, he only hit six winners against 17 unforced errors. Look, he was it was clear he was uncomfortable, and you know people get mad when a player retires, such as yourself. But in this instance, having seen what was on his foot, what do you think? I mean, yeah. They were also saying that there was something different about this blister. I mean, in the press conference afterwards, they, I mean, they were literally filling it with a syringe. He was I mean, like, yeah, taking cortisone shots or something before, and he was still just... Yeah, oh. so, I mean, this clearly was bad. I know many of you have had blisters and know how uncomfortable it is, but imagine sliding around on a 100-degree court against Roger Federer. That's what I'm saying. You're going to be moving side to side, and he was already down six one five two. It yeah, wasn't going his way. It, it wasn't. So, you know, obviously very hard to do, and got to respect him, had a great tournament, um, you know, like you said about the fans, though, imagine paying all that money for a semifinal match for that. I mean, that's, uh, that's say, unfortunate. Hyun, you make 880000 from this event. Give Re- a little back. Us. <laughs> yeah, you'll be fine. Uh, no, I, so a quick, you know, let's do a quick summary on Hyun Chung. We're not going to do him in our next gen series. Who's your pro comparison for him off the top of your head? I think I have to just give it to Djokovic. I knew you were going to say it. I, I see I the hot take in your eyes. I know, but seriously, I mean, when I was watching the two of them play, it, it really does look like they're playing against each other. I think more in the sense of the movement rather than the actual stroke, because I do think Chung 
flattens out the ball more than Djokovic does. Uh, but seriously, I mean, he gets to everything, his movement, his anticipation of where the ball is going. It's very Djokovic-esque, especially on the return as well. I think I may have said this on our last podcast, but what about a Hyun chung stan Rinka comparison? Just both guys who are so aggressive from the baseline. Definitely on the forehand. I, I, I absolutely I, see it on I the forehand. Pre- yeah, the kind of wristy mm-hmm. action. Just the way they drive the ball, and it's uh-huh. not even that there's so much topspin. It's just still such a heavy ball. And yeah, he doesn't give up an inch. I think it's somewhere across between Wawrinka and Ferrer, and that's a very bold comparison and obviously oh, wow. hot takey. But it's the idea that you know, so relentless from the baseline, moves so well horizontally. Uh, not the most comfortable volleyer, but just a guy who does everything. Not a guy who's always slicing well, either. That's, that's what I was gonna say. That's that's Ferrer esque in that he really does never slice. He'll get to that back end and hit it pretty much no matter what the cost. Yeah, and he. he Passing shots are always available to him. An incredible future for him. You know, hopefully he gets healthy soon. I don't know how you nurse a blister like that, but I'm sure he'll find a way. Also, just got to, you know, respect the fact that he's the first Korean player ever to make a major semifinal. I mean, that's awesome for a country. I know I had some of my friends back home who are Korean were talking to me about it, who never talked to me about tennis. So obviously, you know. Kudos to him making your country proud and uh, just a, an incredible tournament for Chung. I really think South Korea should let him light the torch at the Winter Olympics, wow. but that's neither here nor there. Well, is Kim Jong Un going to let that oh, happen? That's the North. Huh? We're talking. Uh, South hey, Korea. they're mixing teams this year, yeah, so fair enough. <laughs> but we'll save that debate for another time. Yeah, Hyun Chung jumps to a career high twenty nine after this event. You know, he'll be seated at the majors likely for the rest of the year. Wouldn't shock me if he makes another run. I agree with you. It will be very interesting to see him on clay, but. In in terms of his future, it's quite bright. And like you said, with an achievement like that, the endorsements are certainly coming. Okay, let's talk briefly again about our other semifinal. Marin Cilic knocks off Kyle Edmund and ends his run with a 6-2, 7-6, 6-2 victory. You know, I watched the highlights for this match and I didn't get a chance to watch it in full. But some of the things I saw Cilic doing really well, hitting the ball behind Edmund, you know. The difference between Dimitrov and Chilich is you can't attack one side of Chilich as blatantly. You know, if you go after his backhand, he's going to hit it back with just as much pace. And sure, he may have a few more unforced errors, but it's not as though you're going to be able to easily dictate. And like we've mentioned, Edmund is not the most natural mover. Clearly, he became uncomfortable in this match. And credit to Chilich for getting the job done. Yeah, and you know, not as high quality tennis as some of the other matches. I mean, I think you can tell based on these statistics that it really was one-sided Chilich. I mean, Chilich won 90% of his first serve points. It's I mean, nuts. Yeah, so it's, it's idea, a lot of one-two punches. I know this is kind of a brief thought, but what do you think of that idea of the first step? Is that indicative of your first, you know, Edmund's lack of an elite first step? His ability, you know, we saw Chilich play today. He likes to slice down the tee. He likes the slices out wide. You know, him protecting 90% of those serves, I imagine a lot of shanks from Edmund. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when Chilich is serving well, first of all, not that... 6-6. Six, six. Yeah, 6-6. Six, six. It's it's hard to counter that. But just, again, like I was saying, looking at the rest of the results, nothing really that impressive. Only a combined 15 net points from the two of them. I mean, Chilich going 9 of 10, which is impressive to win that many. Uh, Edmund, 3 of 5. But just really all around, nothing super impressive from this match. It just seemed like the kind of thing where Chilich was getting a lot of 1-2 punches, hitting some forehands that forced Edmund off the court. 
not allowing Edmund to really take control of the match, and I think that was pretty much the name of the game. Well, like we mentioned, you know, even beyond the winning of the 90% of the first serves, Edmund only had two break opportunities in this match, and in a three-set match, that's a domination, and sure, there was a second-set tiebreak, but two of the other sets go 6-2. Marin Cilic did an excellent job, and in terms of pressuring Edmund, you know, Edmund only wins 48% of his second-serve points. That's not going to get the job done when you're playing someone like Marin Cilic, who's able to return so well, and who you need to dictate against to make uncomfortable and look Edmund had a phenomenal week you look at where he's going to be ranked now he's at a career high 26 you know pockets as well $880,000 which for any young (laughs) player you know I think he turned 23 this month go get yourself a nice birthday gift absolutely a heck of a run and he has a bright future okay we'll do another fun one mark this prediction down who ends the year ranked higher Hyun Chung or Kyle Edmund Two-year age discrepancy. I'm going to give this one to Chung. Wow. I really am. All right. I was impressed with him after this tournament. You know, he's a little bit of a handicap because he's three spots behind him. But Oh, my God. It's so early in the year. And I it's know. not like he has them. And I, they, neither of them have points to defend. Seriously. Exactly. So, you know, I, I like the way that Chung was playing. Uh, you know, Edmund relies a little bit more on a little bit of a hot streak because he is a guy that is hitting a big ball. So I'm, I'm going to take the consistency on Chung. Well, I really like Edmund's serve. I think he's much better, you know, at protecting it, and you know that's going to keep him in a lot of matches. I'll bet you an Aventura dinner on this one. I'll take Kyle Edmund, you know, who's ever ranked higher, the loser has to pay for the dinner. Hey. Shake my hand. I love, hands or maybe Nobu, because you'll be back in LA. Oh, boy. It's <laughs> a little more than Aventura, but we'll, we'll take well, it. We'll make up for it with the savings we did from not betting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, God. Sorry to anyone who took any of our bets. Exactly. A second apology. All right. It's time for the match. Roger Federer defeats Marin Cilic 6-2, 6-7, 6-3, 3-6, 6-1 in the 2018 Australian Open men's singles final. Fed wins his 20th major, 6 Australian Open overall. He ties Roy Emerson and Novak Djokovic as the only people in history to have won six Australian Opens. The guy's 36 years old, but he's climbing back to world number one at the end of this event. I mean, even if he skips clay season again, it doesn't seem to matter because his excellence, it transcends time. He's the only person who successfully has fought off father time. Yeah, and it's funny. We were, we were talking about this earlier. He's like, LeBron, is this his peak? Was his peak five years ago? I mean, who knows? I mean, the guy is, like you said, transcending time. Uh, still fun to watch, in my opinion. You may not think so, but... <laughs> It's not I don't think he's not fun to watch. It's that it's very repetitive. I know what he's going to do. You know he's going to snap off. All right, fine. I'll tell you the crux of my argument. I made this argument last night with Eric, too. If I was playing tennis, I despise playing with people who hit like Roger Federer. I'm out there to get a workout. I'm trying to grind. Me and Murray would have a ball because we'd be doing cross course. We'd be doing down the lines. We'd be doing running drills. Federer's just got to snap his winners, and that's a testament to his shot making, and no one's denying he's the GOAT. But I like to like players who I would like to hit with. Like, me and Djokovic are having a freaking grind. I mean, me and Murray more importantly, obviously. But, like, it's going to be a grind, and I just— Maybe it's because I play that style of game. I enjoy it watching it more. And so I obviously acknowledge Fed's shot making. I love his ability to rush to the net, his serve, his technique. Everything's pristine. I mean, that's why I'll I'll never dislike watching his tennis. Like, just the shot making is the most exciting thing in tennis history. And also, Fritz said that Federer is one of his favorite players to play with. (laughs) Just fun, relaxed workouts and, and hits. And so... 
I don't know. I would I would love to play with Federer. I have no doubt Roger Federer is the man. I mean, he's 20 grand <laughs> slams. He's the man. But yeah, so I don't look, Fed fatigue, I'm ridiculous. I want to see some new faces or maybe like I said earlier, I want to watch him not play Burdich. I don't want to watch him play Chilich or Ferrer or, you know, Rayonich or any any of those guys from that generation not named Del Potro. I don't want to watch him play anymore. I want to watch him play the Grigors because of the baby fed fed story, the Zvereds, the teams, the new guys. And I think I've mentioned this earlier, but if I have to watch him play Nadal one more time, I will lose my freaking mind. Well, I think that needs to be his last match he ever plays is against Nadal. Fair. But would you seriously... Olympic final. I would be all in. That would be awesome. Would you really have rather watched him play Edmund than Chilich? Yes. Actually, maybe... Look, okay, Chilich now and I that are, I said I that, I think, <laughs> I think I would have too. Chilich and I are team eyebrows. I'm rolling with him now. That's true. You guys both have some, some thick eyebrows. <laughs> but it's just... Federer owns these guys. And look, you can speculate on mental advantages that Federer has over these guys, and you can't really quantify that. But it's clear he owns the players 27 to 33. He's in their heads except for the Nadals, the Djokovic's, the Murray's. And I was going to save the Federer greatest of all time argument for the changeover chat. You want to save it for that? Okay. Let's let's save it for the change. Okay, we'll save that, it for that. We'll get too sidetracked. Let's talk real quick about match statistics. Well, first of all, again, it was ruined for me, so I was depressed <laughs> going into the match, so I won't lie, I'm biased. That is that is totally fair, guys. I saw it. He was <laughs> on the floor. It was... It's just ridiculous. I, I know, I know. What I are you doing, you. CNN? They, they screw you sometimes. Tenet, like, the one time they said they the tennis? They talked about tennis, yeah, of course. unbelievable. But, uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about these match statistics, you know, all in all, a somewhat even match. You know, a few more unforced errors uh, from Chilich. Michigan lost then, four two. But hey, Alex and I beat Will Blumberg. That's a, that's hey, a good win for him. Great win. But sorry, go on. <laughs> so anyway, sorry, we, we warned you that might happen. <laughs> um, so Chilich, you know, a few more unforced errors than Fed sixty four to his forty, and winners Federer forty one to Chilich's forty five. But the real difference here, considering they had pretty similar first serve percentages and uh, win percentages on second serve was the win percentage on first serve. Uh, Federer converting 80% of his first serve points. I mean, compared to Chilich's 69%, that's that's pretty much the match right there. Well, I told you before we began this podcast, I was really struggling with how I was going to present my argument of what did Federer do to win this match or what did Chilich do well or not well. And the first thing I turned to is the unforced errors. Yes, Chilich had to play aggressively, but to hit 45 winners against only 64 unforced errors, that's sloppy tennis. And you saw it from the first set. He came out slow. And then that's what I was going to say. You know, that first set, you know, losing the first four games, that's tough. You know, I'm sure a lot of those unforced errors came in that last set, too. Looked like he, you know, after he got off to that slow start, lost some steam. Um, but you got to also give him credit. He was down 2-0 in that fourth set and easily could have given in there. Uh, you know, came back and basically won five straight games. So uh, credit to him for fighting back there. But like you said, a few too many unforced errors and Federer was just too strong throughout the match. Yeah, Federer played really well. And so again, the things he did well, I, I hate to be repetitive, but there's only one way to play Roger Federer and this is why I'm fatigued. And so... You know, Chilich tried to pressure his backhand. We've mentioned this earlier. Chilich is inside in, phenomenal, one of the best in the games. In those second and fourth sets, it was really working. He was forcing Fed to make that extra forehand cross court. But in the rest of the time, you know, Fed, again, at 36, he made some of those cross court gets. He got to the ball. For him to do it as a 36-year-old, I think there was one point in the second set where Chilich had like three overheads and Fed got two of the returns back and was like oh, a half a second off point. of the third one. 
Yeah, it, Roger Federer, his level of tennis never ceases to amaze me. The things he does, his ability to control the net, his ability to put pressure on Chilich, force him to try and push for that extra air because he knows he can't just hang around with Federer. Federer will put him away. Yeah, Roger Federer is the greatest. He really is. Yeah, I mean... So all of these statements are ending. I don't know. Like, what else is there to say? Yeah, I was going to say, not much else. I was going to point out, in the ceremony following the match, he threw on some new shoes, and they were interesting looking. Probably uh, the most controversial thing he did all tournament. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> he goes I was, loses two sets. Some some weird white shoes with some multicolor on the back. I'm, I'm curious. They couldn't even see if it was a Nike sign, but, uh, you know, maybe they'll release those. I'm, I'm interested in seeing what those might be. Better those than the pinks, for sure. Oh, you know, again, we we should give credit to Marin Chilich. I believe he's going to a career high number three after this event. Yep put together a much better performance than he did in the Wimbledon final, and that's a credit to the match being on hard courts. You know, Again, he did have some success when he was stepping into the baseline, and for him to be 6'6", at 28 years old, he has to know that playing aggressive is his only way to win these matches. Yeah, five sets was nice. It was what I was hoping for. I was just hoping for fed baby fed. But... Nevertheless, it was an outstanding first major of the year. I'm really looking forward to the rest of 2018 and what it has in store for us. I do want to talk about the the winners and losers and do our changeover chat, and we're going to do that after one more fake ad. And we'll be right back. And now, a new fake advertisement from our favorite sponsor, Neosporin. Boren Neosporin. Have you ever had a... A blister? I have. No way! Me too! And you know what? They suck. Oh, are they the worst? They just get on the bottom of your feet, open up a nice little hole, and they make it pretty damn uncomfortable. I'd probably withdraw from a semifinal if I had that type of injury. I hear you, but you know what helps out? Neosporin. You mean he could have played? He might have. Oh, he was... No, oh, it's a... Oh, this... I can't think of fake ads. That was I good up until then. Can we hear it back? Can we... Welcome back to... Hey, great shot, man. <laughs> Sorry, Whenever you do yeah. enthusiasm, you throw in the man. Yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it just slips out, you know? I'm enthusiastic. You know what, man? Let's do this. Dude, give me a little Chung fist pump to the crowd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's now the Chung and Joel Embiid. They, they both got it. Uh, Chung got it first. <laughs> Fliegner, I know you're busy with tennis matches, but if you have time, please cue the drum roll. It's time for this week's Changeover Chat. The changeover chat. Ooh, you held that last note just right. Just a little bit. Okay. Australian Open is over. <coughs> we'll put on our final bow right now. Let's do winners and losers. Give me your three winners from this event first. So, obviously, got to start with my boy Fed. Taking the tournament, 20th Grand Slam. Kudos to you. Uh, that's winner number one. Winner number two, Chung. Uh, you know, first Korean to ever make a Grand Slam semifinal. Played his heart out. He's 21 years old. Another obvious winner in my book. $880,000 in the pocket. Unbelievable. I mean, oh, God, that sounds nice. Um, last winner, I'm going to have to give it to Dimitrov. I know he didn't get the results he wanted, but in my book, to get through to a quarterfinal after playing Rublev and Kyrgios and you know going up against an Edmund, I mean, that's, that's tough. So I'm still going to give it to him. Uh, he's a winner in my book. Good tournament to him. I think it's a, a good sign for him in the future. I agree with you. Number one has to be Federer. You're naive if you think a 36-year-old winning his 20th major isn't the most impressive thing that happened over these past two weeks. Just ridiculous. Uh, uh, you've said enough. I agree with you. Fed number one. 
Number two, I'm going to go a little bit of a different route. I'm going to take Kyle Edmund. Oh, I'm going to give him the slight <laughs> bump over Chung only because he finished his semifinal match. And no, it was a disappointing performance, but, you know, he knocks off Anderson. He knocks off a hot Dimitrov, obviously an overheated Dimitrov, but still plays really well, breaks into the top 26, looks primed for a breakout year in 2018, had a really successful Australia swing if you include Brisbane. Future is bright for him. Maybe he takes home a Wimbledon this year as well. My number three guy, uh, do I want to give it to Chung? No, I'm going to give it to Chilich. You know, the, to cry in a final against Fed, you know, only two majors ago, is the type of event that can end a career. It's the type of event that you never rebound from just because of the embarrassment and to lose in straight sets the way he did. And the guy beats Nadal, he demolishes Edmund, and he puts up a really good, you know, underrated fight against Federer in the final. Anytime you can take a five-set match, two five-sets, it's impressive. So Chilich. You get my number three. We can go get our eyebrows waxed together, but congratulations on a great tournament. Switch to Nike from Fila. Okay, let's go on to the losers. I'm going to do mine first. Number one loser, Nike. Are you serious? We had two weeks to figure our shit out with this outfit, and we couldn't get it done. Federer had his coolest shoes, and he didn't whip them out until the trophy ceremony. <laughs> like Nadal goes sleeveless with the headband to show off the hairline, and so like you, you got to stay consistent. You, you have to have a game plan going into that. Fritz is rocking the black and pink in his challenger final because you guys have so much left in stock. I just Not a good wardrobe, but let's change it up for the clay season. Number two, Jack Sock. I mean, we talked about it last week. Yeah, for him to come out and, you know, I think he gets to stay in the top 10, but he loses first round. Just not a way to defend your ranking. And my number three loser of the event, David Goffin. Hmm. As you can remember, after the World Tour Finals, I was very much hot on the David Goffin stock. Losing second round of this tournament to Benito, a guy who lost in the first round of a challenger earlier in 2018, just not the result you're looking for. And, you know, he's supposed to have made the leap by now as a top five presence. And does he lack the weapons? You know, did he let the heat get under you know, under his skin? I don't know. I was just I was really disappointed in Gofen, so probably gonna have to give him the number three. What about you? What are your three losers? Yeah, I hear you. Um, you know, I also have to say Sock's one of them. That's just... Just embarrassing. It is. I mean, Jack, look, we've vacillated so much between being fans and not fans of you, but come on, man. Let's see some consistency. You're, you're making it hard to be your fan, no, I, just, I will say. I agree. Or play doubles. Like, I'll still love you. I mean, I might love you more if you play some doubles. <laughs> seriously. Exactly. Um, I think I'm going to go number two. I'm going to say Delpo. Um, really? Yeah, I, I really thought prior to this tournament that he had a chance to go far. He disappointed me in his match with Burdich. I know we had a five-set match beforehand, but I thought this was a tournament where I really thought people were going to say, look, he's back. He's going to be making it far into Grand Slams for the next year or so. I really wanted to see him play Federer. I know that's a matchup that we've seen before, but I think it's one of the more fun matches to watch. So, yeah, I've got I've to say he's one of the losers in my book. I, I was expecting a lot from him, so has something to do with it, but unfortunately I'm going to have him as another one of my losers. I think my third loser I'm going to have to give to Arinka. I know we just came back from injury. So I was going to say, can I hop on this point? I think our, the third loser, and I, I'm trying to correct mine as well retroactively, us as fans, how many injuries are we going to go through? Yeah. Warinka is still not healthy. Djokovic 
has a new serve motion. Murray's out. Nishikori loses to Novikov first round of a challenger. <laughs> like Rayonich loses first round. It's or maybe second round. It's just Isner loses first round. Oh, but well, that's, that's not an not, injury. That's not a surprise <laughs> yeah, either. But it's just the injury bug. What yeah. like how do we address this? Is it too hot? Nadal pulling out. Exactly. Nadal's knee is bum. I just. I, uh, is it uh, is it a systemic issue? Are we not giving our players enough rest? What's the issue? I mean, do we need to shift grand slams from a draw of you know one twenty eight to sixty four? Hot take. No, that's t- <laughs> or maybe we give them more lag time after events, and you kind of cut down on the two fifties and cut down on the major events. You you know maybe keep the season as long as it is, but cut out some of the weeks of competition. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's hard to say what the. The major issue is, but uh, clearly there's... But that's weird, though. This is the first tournament of the year. You would think that they had a little rest following, you know, the ATP World Tour Finals and the Next Gen Finals. I don't know. It's Was it just the heat? Australia's hot. 11 months on, you know, a month off. That's not enough. No. Football, they have the long off-season. Basketball, a longer off-season. Tennis has the shortest off-season of any sport in... You know, maybe maybe not as much as golf, but still, be given the individual nature of the sport, these singles players to compete at a high level, they need to be their healthiest, particularly given how physical the game has become. And so, yeah, we as fans are losers given these injuries. I like to keep the three out of five sets, though. It was really good. I know we don't mention the WTA as well, but one winner we should throw in, Caroline Wozniacki, Absolutely. first major. Incredible per- performance all week. Her and Simona Halep just... It was an incredibly physical match. I would give anything to watch Caroline Wozniacki work you side to side on the court. <laughs> Just watch you get frustrated. Oh, incredible. All right. The last thing we're going to talk about on this podcast, something we alluded to earlier in the episode, and it has to be the argument we end with. Roger Federer has now won 20 majors, a stat you inform me is 10% of all majors played ever or in the open era. In the, I think it's in the open era. Still, remarkable. Nadal has 16 Djokovic has 12. Murray only has three, but he has two gold medals, so I'm throwing him in here anyway. Of course, you go on a run. Can anyone catch Roger Federer? And is it over? He is the GOAT as of right now, undisputed. So my answer to that is no, only because he is still so healthy. I think if you were to say today Federer calls it quits, there is a chance that Nadal catches it. Djokovic, Depends. I mean, like we saw in this tournament, he's not at his healthiest. I mean, he would need eight more Grand Slams. You know, that is no easy feat. Even if he were to win one a year, he would have to win one a year for the next eight years, two a year for the next four. I mean, he's no youngin anymore, and that's tough. Um, So if there's anyone that's going to do it, it's going to be Nadal. But it's just I don't think it's going to be possible with Fed on the tour for at least the next couple years. So I'm going to play contrarian on this one. What What is your argument, or what could your argument be against Federer being the GOAT? And it's only one thing you can turn to. Career head-to-head, Rafa Nadal, 23, Roger Federer, 15. You can't debate Rafa Nadal is Roger's biggest rival of his entire career. And, you know, given the countless major finals they've played in, given the fact that they've alternated between one and two so often in the rankings, and I believe have been ranked at that position, you know, as much as any two players in history. Yes, Roger Federer has won their last five encounters, and Rafa hasn't beaten him since 2014. And that has to matter in terms of second peaks or third peaks or four, you know, how we thought the 2009 to 2011 Roger was the best we were going to see. And now he wins three out of the past five majors, you know, just ridiculous. 
I don't know. The only argument against him left is if you can't beat your biggest rival, how you can you be considered the best of all time, especially in an individual sport? I mean, yeah, I think the only way to counter that is to say, look, Nadal is without a doubt the greatest clay court tennis player to ever live. Nine French Opens is unprecedented. And I think if you were to look at the head-to-head between him and Federer, I think most of those losses, or at least a majority of them, are coming on clay. So I think there is a little bit of a bias to that head-to-head. So Nadal on clay, 13-2 and against Federer. Yep. Federer's 2-1 and on grass courts, 11-9 and on hard courts. Exactly. So if you remove the clay courts, they are basically even head-to-head. Um, you just got to give it to Fed. He's spent more time at number one than any player, more consecutive weeks at number one than any player. He's got more Grand Slams. He has more ATP 1000 titles. I mean... Does he? Then Nadal? I, I question that. I don't think that's true. I think uh, Nadal has a few more Masters. I'm pretty sure it's Djokovic one, Nadal two. Most, Although, are they all, are all ATP 1000s considered Masters? Yeah, I believe so. So most Masters titles. You're right. Actually, Federer does have 28 compared to Nadal's 30, but still has more Grand Slams, has six ATP World Tour finals to Nadal zero. I still think it goes to Federer. Hey, great shot on your attempt. You know, I'm looking at a breakdown of some of the fun things. In terms of Grand Slam matches, Nadal's 9-3 all time. In finals, he's 6-3. But if you take out his 5 at the French Open, Nadal's actually 4-3 in Grand Slam matches. They've actually never played in a U.S. Open final. The only final they've never played in. So that's pretty interesting. Look, I'm playing devil's advocate. I agree with you. As of right now, Federer's the greatest. Do I see a pathway for Nadal to have another revival, resurgence like Roger, play until he's 36, win four more majors. I just don't know if his knee can hold up physically on the clay. And so, yeah, it, I agree. I'm playing devil's advocate. Fed's the GOAT. You, you, you got, oh, no, no, Murray's the GOAT. Fed's a close second. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, obviously Fed's the GOAT, followed by me and you as a doubles team. Also, yep. I will say it's not going to make the Cracked Rackets ridiculous tweets, but the most ridiculous text I received all tournament long was you texting me after watching doubles highlights saying, dude, we could win a major. That was ridiculous. <laughs> like, are you serious? Oh, we could even God. play one doubles for Michigan. The Bryans uh, would take my serve and hit a ball through you. Yeah, I mean, my hands are pretty disgusting. No, their hands are disgusting. (laughs) Yes, they are. Your hands need to be washed. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we apologize and know this was a long episode, but obviously it was an incredible Australian Open, and we had a ton of content we needed to cover. We want to, again, thank the Cracked Rackets team for all they did this week. Alex Leopold, Dalton Thieneman, Teddy Brodsky, Alex Areza, Daniel Westoff, the whole crack track, Parker Thieneman, how could I forget you? Just the whole team did an excellent job. And again, go check out that coverage at crackedrackets.com. As always, we encourage you, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, comment in the crack chats, you know, leave a review on Apple at Pods, you know, only the five-star reviews for us. We don't have time for those other things. The best thing you could do is subscribe on your friend's phone. We'll take the count, even if they don't listen. <laughs> but yeah, Max Rothman, Heck of a first major. Any parting thoughts for our fans out there? Look, if this tournament has any indication of what the rest of this year is going to look like, it is going to be interesting. I'm excited. I don't know about you all, but I'm ready to keep watching. Keep a lookout for some of our pods that are going to cover some challengers, some of the smaller tournaments, especially the college. I think that's going to be something that's really fun to look forward to this year. If I can get over this Michigan loss. Yes, it's a tough (laughs) Michigan loss. but uh, I think this year is going to be great. 
Uh, I'm just looking forward to it. No, for sure. And a special shout out, as always, to the dynamic duo of Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a fuck of a job to do while editing. I just threw in another quack for you. Now, cut that last one. Sorry. Who have a fuck of a job to do editing. But we appreciate the work you do and know that we can't do this without you. So thank you. One last time for Max Rothman, for the duo of Fligner and Westoff, I'm Alex Gruskin, and we say to you, hey, great shot. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Great shot production. Production.